Good morning once again. We are in session five, which you can see spiritual growth, unity, and facing challenges in fellowship. We're really going to focus on unity, but you're going to see that broadcasted out into facing challenges as well as spiritual growth challenges, but with the primary mission being this concept of unity. Okay, let's see here. Unity versus uniformity, and is unity a privilege? I showed this slide last week, but just by way of review, I'm going to quickly go through these. Unity is when we are one, one mind, spirit, purpose, and goal. It is an agreement, a concord, a unanimity, integral, another way of saying unity, whereas uniformity is a little bit different. Do you all see the difference here in the descriptives? Uniformity is when we all believe the same thing and practice the same thing. We are uniform in our beliefs and behaviors, so there's a consistency, a sameness. There's a likeness and a similarity. It's kind of akin to being on a pathway, and all of a sudden you see divergent pathways, and off in the distance is the mountain and the objective, and some in the group see these different divergent pathways, and off they go heading down these divergent pathways, but they're all pushing up the mountain to the same common goal. As I look around the room at, at each one of you, you've all got unique giftings, unique callings, unique ways of communicating, unique ways of expressing the image of God, the Imago Deo. And that's proven by our scriptures. And it's proven by, again, the triune nature of our God. So that would be uniformity. Any questions about the distinction being made between unity and uniformity? It's an important concept. Okay. And then we talked a little bit about brothers and sisters. That is a biblical um, term, brothers and sisters. Paul uses it often. I have a quote here, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is sharing his heart with people who he views as closer than family, people who he views as spiritually being wedded to, bonded with. And it's, Philippians is such a wonderful book because it expresses Paul, heart, Paul's heart so marvelous, marvelously. And, um, oh boy, Jeremiah, <laughs> are we wearing the same shirt? <laughs> then, then I looked at my son this morning in the parking lot when we were walking in. And it's like, well, maybe I should call him up here to join us and have an image. And then you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to blame Diane because I showed her two shirts. And I said, which one should I wear? And she said, oh, I don't care. Oh, is this unity or unity? <laughs> <laughs> we need uniformity. <laughs> uniformity. Oh my. Anyway, I digress. The, the important thing to keep in mind is that unity is very much tied to joy. The more united we are, the more joy-filled our expression of purposes, of goal, and it, it's, just, it's just the place of perfect design for where our Lord would have us be. Sadly, as I look around this room, as I've said before, I do see a bunch of sinners, and I'm looking at one myself, of course, and, and this is the big challenge to our unity, okay? But the important concept here, just like we talked about in 1 John, um, unity is tied to joy. Don't ever forget that. So heavily, that is, make a, 
extended effort to promote your unity within your family, within your friend group, at your workplace if you're working, um, certainly here within these four walls and whenever you're expressing fellowship or engaged in fellowship with one another. Unity is tied to joy. We live in a, in a world that could use a lot more joy, don't we? And we could be certain, certainly we have the opportunity to be expressing that. These are the six topics that you have in your notes. Agreement on core doctrines is the first bullet. And we're going to jump right in to understanding that. These were some introductory slides. Question, Dana? Tip that screen just a hair because it looks like it's... Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Super. Everybody good with that? Got the right angle? Um, I had asked this question, do we live in a fractured and divisive world? And we spent about 10 minutes talking about that. We don't need to revisit it. But I would also say that we live in a very selfish world very self-obsessed, and we, I think we had talked a little bit about that earlier on in, in the fellowship classes. Um, fractured and divided, why, and then what are typical worldly efforts to unify? We talked about different initiatives that happen kind of generically in the political ether. Uh, certainly you see ecumenical. Do you know what I mean by the term ecumenical? It means like across different churches, different religious sectors, you see these efforts to pull everybody together and create this unity. Well, remember one of our key points. What's the first key point on your notes? We have to have agreement on core doctrine, on core teaching. And so ecumenical activity needs to be viewed very suspect because engaging in unity without core doctrine, without commonness in teaching, presents challenges and ultimately failure in whatever unity might be manifested by the effort of man in such, in such a effort. Does that make sense? It's a very important thing to keep in mind as we express our fellowship in the Christian, in the Christian life. Um, what is the biblical goal of both believers and his church in unity? Glory to God, sanctifying oneself, all these different types of things come into play. Um, the church are those who are intent, internally unified in divine life, spiritual life, revealed truth, common purpose, mission, and eternal destiny. There you have a true biblical church. All in Christ are the one true church. And then we've got different scripture passages. I added the one there in red because a week ago it wasn't there. And I started reading John 4 until everybody's like, stop, stop. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. But uh, yeah, 1 John chapter 4. We're actually going to kind of rotate back into that. Spiritual growth, unity, and facing challenges in fellowship. Session 1, foundations. Let's see here. Session 1, foundations of fellowship. This just goes back into the history of what we talked about. Um, unity in the Father and the Son. I, I do want to bear down on this just a little bit more because it's so vitally important that we see our unity as expressed by who our God is. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, you could write that down as a key verse under this heading, unity in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, it reads, for by, those, for, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers, there's that word fellowship, common sharers, partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we are set apart 
from the world, which is seeking after itself and its own appetites and its own desires, we are commonly wedded together in life by his promises. And then we have um, yeah, Romans 12. I'm not going to go into that just in the interest of time. Um, see here. Kind of thinking of maybe doing that. You know what? I, I am going to do Romans 12 just because it, it points to this picture of unity and uniformity. Romans 12, verse 5. If you want to open up your Bibles, Romans 12, verse 5. It's a very important point. <clears throat> kind of backs up what we started out with here this morning. So we, Romans 12, verse 5, and the first half of verse 6. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So again, you can see our commonness, our fellowship, our unity, one in the body of Christ, even though we are many, but also individual members one of another. Okay? Very important point. Point three here, every spiritual benefit that is received comes only in union with Christ. Do you really believe that? That every spiritual benefit in your life comes only as a result of our union in Christ? Or do you think somehow that you contribute to spiritual benefits or spiritual gifting? No, everything has its origination and what the Holy Spirit has given you in the way of his gifting, his unique wiring, if you will, of your, kills, of your skill set, everything. And if that isn't something to rejoice in when you're with other believers and sharing life with, what is? I mean, that in and of itself is such a cool thing because they're all so different and varied among us. But yet we get to celebrate that uniqueness that we have in our gifting. And then John 13, 34, and 35, I had talked about this briefly. Um, Pastor Rich had just talked about the fact that we have a, a new community, new believers, new kingdom, and a new covenant when he was preaching just recently, a few Sundays back in John 13, 34, and 35. What is it about this passage? Let me ask a question because this, this will kind of form right into the core doctrine slide that's coming up next by way of review. What is it about... John 13, 34, and 35, that uniquely addresses the issue of love. Does anybody know? A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Here's the key phrase that I'm going for. Even as I have loved you, that you have loved one for another. What is unique about that love? It's, it's, it's not just our love, it's God's love. Thank you. It's God's love. The answer to the question is, we're reflecting God's perfect love onto one another. It isn't our version of love. And that's one major core doctrinal issue, and we spent some time talking about that last week. It's God's version of love that we reflect onto one another. And then the very next passage is what probably will be addressed next week. By this all men shall know that you are disciples of mine if you have love one for another. We're not talking about worldly love here. We're not talking about our own definition of love. We're talking about Christ's specific kind of love that he expressed to humanity when he was here with us. So it's a very important point to 
separate ourselves from the floppy kind of love that we see in the world today. As a matter of fact, I went to um, <clears throat> an old theologian that I've referenced before, S. Lewis Johnson, has a great sermon in, um, in uh, 1 John chapter 4, and he talks about how so he, the, the subject or the heading of his, of his sermon was the divinity of love, the divinity of love. And he talks about how people like Ralph Waldo Emerson said way back over 100 years ago, he was, a, he was really the first transcendentalist, Ralph Waldo Emerson. So don't look upon my quote of his name as holding him up in some kind of high level of esteem. As a matter of fact, he said, all mankind loves a lover. That was his interpretation of love. All mankind loves a lover. Now, this is well over 100 years ago, right? But today, our society has really a rival to that, and it is all mankind loves love. We all love love, don't we? And um, I love what S. Lewis Johnson says about this. He says, that statement, all mankind loves love, that statement epitomizes the floppy, flabby, wimpy 20th century kind of love. And then worse yet, that kind of love is said to be the answer to all of our problems by highly esteemed people like Paul McCartney and the Beatles and all the other music that we have banging around between our two ears for those of us who like Siri. <laughs> floppy, wimpy, shabby kind of love. <clears throat> Then there was another theologian by the name of, I love this name, Gerhardus Voss, V-O-S, Gerhardus Voss. He was a Princeton theologian, obviously I think Dutch in background we'll go with, but he led the Princeton Theology School um, about 120, 130 years ago. So when S. Lewis Johnson did this sermon, he said over 80 years ago, but this was like in the 1980s here, um, some words on love in a lengthy article that Gerhardus Voss wrote on the topic. In, in this particular article, he said, the love of God occupies a more prominent place than any other divine attribute in present-day Christian consciousness. Do you agree with that statement? Mind you, this is a 120-year-old statement. The love of God occupies a more prominent place than any other divine attribute in present-day Christian conscious, consciousness. I'd go along with that. Wouldn't you? Any dissenters? Today. Today it's even worse. Yeah, I'd say in today's church, it's probably the center point, but there's, there's more to God than that. Far more to God than that. I mean, everybody keeps hanging their hat on the God is love thing, but God is also a consuming fire. He is also a vengeful God. Everybody goes, no, God is love. So anything anyone does is okay because you're just supposed to love them. Amen. Yep. If you are walking down the street, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, yeah. Pastor Jerry over the years has said many times, you're not only saved by God, you are saved from God. Thank you. Very well put. Yes. That's, that's a great way to put it. And, and, and again, when we're talking about Christ's kind of love and we're expressing that in our unity, in our fellowship, in our koinonia, it has to be his peculiar kind of love. Okay? And, and there, are, there are times in which engaging one another in love, especially as it relates to sin or things that have been said that are inappropriate, can be really quite difficult. If you were out on the sidewalk today and you, were, you had opportunity to witness to somebody 
and um, you, you gave him or her the gospel and they heard you out. And, and what in your experience, perhaps many of you have done this or something similar, maybe a family member who you've witnessed to, in your experience, what is the typical secular response to the gospel message as you witness it, certainly as it relates to love, but also in the greater context of what usually is their objection to the gospel entreaty that you found? Would you typify the classical rejection in any one category? I know there's a whole multiplicity of them to be sure, but if you could kind of build them into maybe one major category, what, what would that be? That there's only one way is an objection because most people on the street believe that there's multiple ways to God, if not multiple gods. Thank you. That's a very big one. Yeah, that's a big one. Excellent. Very good. True. All of these are very good. I'm going after one, and it relates to what our study topic is. What is our equipped topic? It is this. What about the church? What I look at when I see Christianity in action, when I see a dysfunctional, disunified, broken church, I don't see a new community. I don't see new believers. I don't see a new kingdom. I don't see a new promise. It's a pretty big problem that we have in the church today. Let's move on. <clears throat> agreement in core doctrines. Is it even possible? Believers should share a common understanding and acceptance of those essential Christian doctrines and beliefs. And then I reference the Acts 2, 40 through 42, where, where the original church has founded. Again, it's a historical document related to the founding of the church, and they gathered up and engaged in fellowship, uh, the breaking of the bread, teaching, teaching is really the one key element of that. Who were the people propagating the teaching in the early church according to Acts chapter 2? The apostles. It was apostolic teaching, absolutely. As a matter of fact, if you go to Acts chapter 1 verse 22 right here, when they needed to fill out the 12 apostles, they wanted the two new apostles to have been a witness to the resurrection. So this is from where we build our stability and our union, and that is apostolic declaration of truth. And we have unity concerning how the apostles expressed the life and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our mandates, our imperatives, by virtue of their teachings. That's what we stand on. This is what unites us. Core doctrine, core teaching. Um, unity with God through the Lord and the Spirit. This is the activity of the triune God presented in Ephesians. And then I, I love the Acts 17, 17 passage. I know we've spent a fair amount of time in Acts, in rather, uh, John. You know what? That is wrong. That should be John 17, 17. I don't know where Acts 17, 17 came from, but that is John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. From that passage, notice what he does. He then goes into this wonderful communication on the unity of the disciples being caught up with the Godhead. 
pay careful attention when you're studying Acts chapter 17 about that sequence, how the truth is the core of our sanctity, and then it builds into the expression of our unity in Acts chapter 17, verses 20, all the way through the end of that beautiful prayer chapter, high priestly prayer chapter. So it's, a, it's very much of an essential, an essential of what we have in our faith. Our truth and doctrine to be considered as obstacles to our unity. And I'm asking that as an open-ended question. Our truth and doctrine to be, to be considered as obstacles to our unity. Hands going up all over the place. The correct answer is no. That's good. Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't see your hand. I don't see well out of my right eye, and I turned my head just for an instant, and then I turned it back and caught it. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was going to say that truth and doctrine are definitely, should not be an obstacle in uh, relating to other believers, followers of Christ. And, you know, we might share some doctrine that they might not know, but they should be receptive to it if we can support it as doctrine. But otherwise, if you leave with doctrine to an unbeliever, I, I don't think that's a good way to go. If you don't have teaching and doctrine in unity and held in the same high esteem as I know all of you hold it, and, and positive conclusions about the core emphasis of biblical doctrine and truth. But yet you try to unify around some other theme, some other collaborative effort. That fellowship will fail. Any disagreements with that? It'll fail. It may not happen in 24 hours or even a week or even two months. It will fail. Because they're not cinched together with the rebar that is in our faith. I love rebar. Rebar is such a cool thing. I mean, you think of concrete when it's poured in a slab, it's got plenty of compressional strength, right? But the rebar that's embedded in the concrete gives the concrete torsional strength. If you bend concrete, it just snaps apart. It flails apart into nothing. It has very little torsional strength, if any. But when you put rebar in the concrete, now it can take compressional strength and twisting strength, doctrines like rebar in our faith. It gives our faith the twisting strength that it needs. Okay? Kind of a weird analogy. But yeah, forgive me, that is John 17, 17, please. Um, teaching, the word teaching in Acts 2 is the word didoxe, uh, which um, you probably recognize somewhat from didactic. <laughs> Uh, which is just a, another term for teaching. It's used 30 times in the Bible. Um, there's actually another, let me see if I've got this right, the rule. Yeah, there's, there's another meaning of the word, which is a rule or measure of faith, uh, is another way that it's been defined. And um, there, there was a very famous doctrinaire teacher from the second century in the church. His name was Irenaeus, Irenaeus, and he has a wonderful statement etching together the doctrines of the faith. I'm just going to take a minute and read it 
because this is what is the rebar of our fellowship. This is extra biblical. I'm not reading to you scripture. I'm reading to you what is, what is commonly known, to, known as this person. Again, he's commonly known as the first great theologian to pull together the teachings of the word of God and, and, and add coherence and architecture to them. Again, he did it in the second century, and he's famously known for his standing firm against, does anybody know? What was the common heresy of the second century that was, he stood firm against the Gnostics. Eric's got his mouth like this. You know, don't you, Eric? <laughs> the Gnostics. He, he debated the Gnostics in Rome. And when he was in Rome, his town in France, Lyon, was absolutely subjugated to a mass murderous mob that killed Christians brutally. And when he came back, he came back to a church that had been decapitated virtually by the anti-Christian hatred. But nonetheless, this man famously wrote in the second century, and listen to this, this doctrinal statement, it's beautiful. There is one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and earth, and the seas and all the things that are in them, and one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation. And in the Holy Spirit, who made known through the prophets the plan of salvation. Now the prophet there, that, that's a reference to the Old Testament revelation. He made known the plan of salvation and the coming and the birth from a virgin, his passion and the resurrection from the dead and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord and his future appearing from heaven in the glory of the, in the, glory of the Father to sum up all things and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and, and God and Savior and King according to the will of his invisible, of the invisible Father, excuse me, kind of scroll down, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him, and that he should execute just judgment towards all, that he may send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates, together with the ungodly, the unrighteous, and wicked and profane among men into everlasting fire. There you have the everlasting fire attribute of God expressing his love. Perfect love, perfect judgment. They have to go together. They have to. Um, into everlasting fire. But also may in the exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous and holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance and may surround them and that he will surround them with everlasting glory. Again, written about um, in the second century by Irenaeus of Lyon. A great statement of our common agreement on core doctrine. Any other thoughts or comments about the importance of that? This last statement here on the bottom that just kind of popped on, believers should share a biblical understanding and share acceptance of essential Christian doctrines and, and beliefs. That's kind of a summary statement, and if you want to make a note of that, you can, but you can see the scripture text that you can put on the blanks on your note paper just as a reference to backing up how vital it is that we have core doctrinal agreement. Okay? So we will push on to the next 
topic, which is love and humility. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, and 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 12 express love very clearly. God bless you. Um, you know, in, in a way, you can, you, can say, you can sum up the first point by saying our fellowship, our unity, is based on one truth, right? One truth. When you see this slide, you could even write in your notes, one affection. Love and humility is one affection. So one truth, one affection in love and, and humility. Um, I think I had Colossians 3. Yeah, I did. 3.14 in my notes. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Perfect bond of unity. Um, a couple comments on this descriptive in Colossians 3.14. Again, I'll repeat it one more time. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Perfect, that word, is the same word that we see uh, John using. It's used many times in scriptures, including Christ, Christ on the cross, but also when the Lord expressed in John 13, verse 1, that he had loved his disciples to perfection, to completion. And so what, what Paul is writing to the church in Colossae here is that we have this perfect bond of completion or consummation or kind of a, a sense of cumulative perfection over time that's just been worked into the hearts and minds of all of the believers. That's the type of unity that Paul is talking about or the type of love in unity that Paul is talking about here in Colossians 3.14. <clears throat> so telos is an end goal, it's a completion, it's a bond of unity. Um, there's another term in here, perfect bond, that term bond. Well, what does that mean? It's a Greek word that begins with the prefix syn, S-Y-N, synonym, synchronize. It's, it's a pulling together, closely identifying with, a binding. So love is like a binding glue between us. Okay, so it's an it's a ending bond, a perfect bond of unity. Okay? Um, let's see here. And then I've got, yeah, this is kind of interesting. Um, a note on that word used for bond. Um, when you think of love's perfect bond and unity, and you think of the impact of the spiritual reawakening that's gone, gone on in your heart and, and how grateful you are for that as a man or woman of God. And you think of how bonded you are to God. Doesn't that give you excitement to want to share that with other people? To, to put on that perfect bond of unity in your expression of what God has done within your hearts? And in a way, that in and of itself is, is a unifying element of our fellowship together. When you run into a Christian in a faraway land, you know you've got that perfect bond of unity and you share. Your, your spirit rejoices within. There's a sense of spiritual invigoration when that kind of thing happens. Hey, we've got something in common here. Oh, great. Tell me where you live. Tell me about your church. Tell me what you're doing here. And you share life at a connected level. That's what Paul's talking about in this entreaty to unity in a very important setup verse 
for other imperatives that Paul makes in the middle here of Colossians 3. Very important imperatives. Peace, the word of Christ dwelling richly within you. Very common imperatives, right? So let's keep that in view. Um, one other comment about love, real quick, is uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle John tells the church in Ephesus to test the spirits. Do you all recall that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1? He calls the church to test the spirits to see if they are really of Christ. And, and what is the proper answer to the test, to the testing of spirits? Do any of you recall from 1 John? Yep, that Christ walked the face of the earth as man. Um, he said in verse number two, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, yep, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard and that it is coming into the world already. But then what's real interesting, and this, is, this actually correlates back to the first point about core doctrine. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the apostle writes, They are from the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. Can you get a witness to that? Boy, you start talking to somebody about, about Christ-related or Bible issues, and pretty much their whole foundation comes from the world and man, right? Well... They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. That, that's the real sad reality. They convince one another of their untruths relative to Jesus. But now listen to this part of 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Who are the us? He, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Hold it. Who is the us here? What is, what is John talking about? It's the same thing that Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. It's the same thing that the Lord was talking about when he was before Pilate in John chapter 18. And Pilate kind of thought, so you are a king. And the Lord's response to Pilate, you can imagine it, on a high place in Jerusalem overlooking the city, the Kidron Valley, sitting in front of Pilate. And the Lord's response was, For this I have been born, and for this I have come to testify as to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So the apostles, the Lord, they all line up and form that perfect doctrine that serves as our foundation. Of course, Pilate's response was to the Lord, a question, what is truth? And he went out to the Pharisees and he said, I find no guilt in him, and he washed his hands of the whole thing. But isn't it interesting that his conversation terminated on truth? And that's what we're talking about here in terms of what we share. Apostolic truth, and we test the spirits. Who are they standing on, the world? or his revelation, the apostolic revelation? What are they building their doctrines on? We can certainly unify in this area.
we have to. Okay? Um, let's push on. Love as God loves, the Lord determines and defines how we love. There's a section in John chapter 8 that I'm almost inclined to go to if we have the time. Um, where John is engaged in a conversation, where the Lord, rather, is engaged in a conversation. Would somebody look it up for me? Uh, John chapter 8, John, uh, the, the Lord is engaged in a conversation with the Pharisees about from where he comes. And I think it's John 8.32. And, and start reading that discourse because it really captures an expression of God's love as well as the fierceness of his response, because remember there was an argument between the Pharisees saying, we are from Abraham. You are a product of, does anybody have it yet? Can you read it? Thank you, John, I think, is it 832? I'm gonna start with 831. Thank you. Um, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Yeah, keep going. Thank uh, you. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak of things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered him and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were, fa were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Perfect. That, that's good. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading all of that. Question. Is that an expression of Jesus' love to the Pharisees? Yes. How so? Speaks the truth. Speaking the truth. What else? Could, could they're leading others astray. Right. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, the, the Pharisees were responsible for the spiritual administration leadership of the entire <coughs> Jewish state. God's called upon people. But the Lord came at a perfect time, at a perfect time, preordained by God in heaven, to completely rip out the, the terrible human-based teaching that had untethered the people, God's chosen people from his divine program on this redemptive mission. And that is love. How about with a whip in the temple? That is love. I, I know it, it's, it's totally contrary to what we would think about love, love and humility being 
expressed in the world today. Unity emphasizes love for one another and a spirit of humility. Christians consider others' needs and interests as more important than their own. Let's jump to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and take a look at Paul's communication there with the church in Philippi. Micah chapter 6, while you're moving there, I'm just going to comment on Micah chapter 6. Um, this is an Old Testament lesser prophet, minor prophet, and, and in that section of scripture, the question, what is required of, of us, what is required of man, O God, and, and Micah the prophet makes it clear that there's only a handful of things that are required of us, that we walk humbly, which means we're modest, rightly fitted, or metered out before the Lord your God. It, it is he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. This is a person who's rightly measured out. Not measured out by people, not measured out by even your best friend, but rightly humbled before God. Okay? In Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> we see the Apostle Paul writing to this church in Philippi. He begins with, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Isn't it interesting that Paul has no problem being called home to be with God, whereas we fight against it and we weep when a brother, when a brother passes so much, and of course we miss him. But Paul is like, look, this whole world, you can take it. But right now, I'm here, and so I have to be about the Lord's business. And it's a unifying, joy-revelatory joy revelatory business that he's engaged in. Let's push on here in the scripture. Um, verse number 25, Paul says, convinced of this, everything that he just said, convinced that he's better off hanging in there, staying on, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy. Do you see it? Unity, joy, engaging and building one another up. He says, um, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all for your progress and joy in the faith. Your joy in the faith. So that, verse 26, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. Oh, I lost my place. Let me see here. Sorry. Yeah, in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. That word, the word for proud confidence there is interesting. It, it, it's, it's, literary, it's literally translated rejoicing in me for progress and joy. Rejoicing in me. Um, one of the things that, that's written in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 is a parallel passage. Let leaders have your submission. Let them do this with joy. Question, do we have a lot of pastoral joy in the modern church today? Or do we have a lack of pastoral joy? And pastors in the room do not need to answer. <laughs> Is there pastoral joy in the ministry today? Is there adequate? Hebrews 
13:17. Let leaders have your submission. Let them do this with joy. Question: Do we have pastoral joy in the church? Let's, let's answer it in general, not specific. We'll say that we we'll say that we have pastoral joy going on around here. And I'm not a pastor at all, but I'm going to say yes, there is. But in the church writ large, what say you? No. Sorry? No. Why not? Yeah. Well, just because you hear of so many pastors leaving their jobs and finding other pursuits, and then plenty of churches just closing, partly than churches without pastors because they left. Yeah. No, it's, it's so true. You're exactly right. Um, there's so much turnover in the leadership of churches. People dropping out of eldership positions, deacon positions. Why? Because there's so much disunity, so much sin, so much yelling and screaming about the color of the carpet, or far worse. Okay? And, and the fact of the matter is, um, for the sake of of our God's very essence and his perfect unity. We need to focus on giving one another joy, especially our pastors and our leaders. Go ahead, please. So one of the things I'm noticing in today's society is you're not allowed to make anyone feel bad. You can't make them feel threatened or embarrassed or disagreed with because if you do, then that's not love. Right. So a lot of the Christian church is now about love, and therefore, you know, if you're gay and you want to get married in their church and people say you can't do that, that's offensive. Therefore, that's not love. But it is truth. So we're not allowed to tell the truth because the truth might hurt somebody's feelings, and if you hurt their feelings, then you're not loving them. So what we've done is redefine what God's love is, and we've got about half the Christian church following that, and the rest of it's following that. And, and when the other half of the Christian church goes away and follows that, what happens to their fellowship? It comes. What happens to the joy of their leaders? See how vital to our unity, love, humility, core beliefs are. We have to, we have to camp on that. We have to fight for it. As a matter of fact, if we're not fighting for it, chances are pretty good that we're fighting one another because of our very nature. We, we bite and devour each other if we're not intentionally looking for how to combat the world and its system as it's lurking around there rather than eating our own. Question, Mark. Yeah, I was just going to say the major denominations are all splitting. The, the Presbyterians have split, the Lutherans have split, the uh, uh, Methodists, I was trying to think, yeah, they're the latest ones. They've split, and it's all split over doctrine. Split over doctrine, love, humility. I'm sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. I was interrupting you. Yeah. What they split over is one group says, this is what, this is truth, this is doctrine, this is everything we believe, and the other one is saying, nah, we've kind of moved on from that, and the world says this, and the world says that, and they try to mix that with this. That's where the splits occur. Amen. Thank you, Marv. Spot on. And now we get a sense of why this is just so vital. Look at verse 17. 
uh, or, or verse 27 rather of Philippians 20 of Philippians chapter 1 because this is another important teaching that contributes to our unity but those are great comments was there an, did you have a comment Hillary please I was I think the culture is at play, but I think it's really the strength of the leader that is the problem. Is their problem? So, in our church, right? Like our our pastors preach truth, and they're joyful because they know they're following the Lord and the Bible. And so, it doesn't. I don't think joy depends on numbers. Obviously, it depends on our adherence to truth. So, our leaders are joyful because they know they're following Scripture, and then regardless of what people are saying to them in the body, they know they're following the Lord. And that's what's happening with all these other churches is they're pandering and then they don't have ground to stand on and they know that there's no strength in the leadership and then they're just falling apart. So I think it really has to do with the leader. As much as the constituents are at play, it really has to do with them. Because even if they have one person that they're they're leading, as long as they're leading in strength toward with scripture, then they'll have joy. And the, the Holy Spirit engages in a convicting ministry for all of us, mm -hmm. leadership, the members of the church. And, and we need to be about the business of, of making their vocational call, their calling, you know, joyful, right, Hebrews? And we need to be about the business of submitting to the Holy Spirit when we're under conviction. And our leaders, they emulate that too. And, and, and they, they hold together the constituency that is this church, the organization and structure, and adhere to their, their adherence to core doctrines and their example in that is vital to our unity, as you're saying. Um, any other comments, please? We have an erosion of core doctrine, and that starts usually with leadership being that way. Then you end up with a church that, um, to love others, social issues instead of biblical. Yeah, thank you. Or even loving the world, the whole green movement. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Great comments, everybody. We need to roll. Um, verse 27 of Philippians 1. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For, verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Um, that word conduct yourselves, is an interesting Greek word. It has to do with something called polis pride. You know what the, what the metropolis, polis? It's when people are all in one community, one city, and there's this sense of civic pride that gets pulled together. That was going on in this church where they were proud of their heritage, proud of their history. Some famous historical battles had occurred in and around the part of uh, the, the world where, where Philippi is or was. Well, the ruins are there today. But the point is, we have pride and every right to be encouraged in this sense of civic communal pride. There was once a day when I was really proud of you know, my home state and my home city and my country, and now it's changing. Anyway, enough. 
Love and humility. <laughs> Sorry. Um, love and humility. Unity emphasizes love for one another and a spirit of humility. Christians consider other needs, others' needs and interests as more important than their own. And that's really the how do we get to this conduct yourself. Go to Philippians 2 verse 1 real quick. Therefore, so here's the famous therefore statement in Philippians 2 verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I don't know how much of the time the elders of our church have to deal with the inanity of either family breakdowns or internal church squabbles or um, issues that are so self-obsessed in our self-obsessed society. And, and we really need to get our heads and our faces off of ourselves and onto other people. And oh, by the way, when you do that, you might ask yourself the question, I'm all about serving, 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 giving, giving, giving. Who's looking out for me? As John MacArthur said in 2020 when he gave a sermon on this text, he said, don't worry, the Lord's got that. That's it. Humility. Other-centeredness. Paul exemplifies that. Where does Philippians go from here? Anybody know? I'm going to stop in Philippians chapter 2 right here. Where, what does the next section of Philippians 2 deal with? right here. Eric, go ahead. You can say it. It's um, Christ's example of humility. Thank you. Are any of you familiar with Christ's example of humility? Okay. Enough said. Moving along. Peaceful resolution. <clears throat> um, I'm just going to briefly survey Romans 5 here. Peace is defined biblically. It is not on the horizontal our peace flows out from the perfect unity. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction to faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of glory. Verse 3, And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and per perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. People, it is the peace of God that defines the type of peace that we would replicate to the world. And you see this perfectly communicated in... Um, Ephesians chapter 2, 14 and 15, when this uniting of the Jews with the Gentiles is brought to bear in the Apostle Paul's communication, being brought into one common fellowship. Uh, Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace. He's our peace. You want to resolve issues of conflict? Reflect and build upon the peace that God gave to you. Go back to Romans 5. Go back to Ephesians 2. Study these passages and be encouraged. You're doing, 
you're doing a, a, a joy-filled work. I mean, Jesus himself was the Prince of Peace, communicated in Isaiah 9-7. John 14-27, a place where, I think we're going there today, right? John 14, 27, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of peace, of unity. Uh, Jesus is anxious to communicate to these disciples who are all kind of freaked out by what's happening um, with his departure. My peace I give you. Perfect peace. Be, be satisfied. Sit down in that and then reflect it one to another. So when conflicts or disagreements arise, Christians are encouraged to seek peaceful and reconciliatory solutions following the biblical principles of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is a whole nother talk right here. Any of you familiar with that scripture text? Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It is what we are to do to resolve a scenario where a brother is sinning, how we are to go to him and try to win him back if he listens to you. How we're to grab a couple more so that every word may be witnessed. And then if he doesn't listen to them, you tell it to the church. Again, all of this is done out of a heart of reconciliation, of winning that brother back, including if they're cast out and treated as a tax, as a tax uh, collector or Gentile. There's still a heart given to reconciliation all the time. This, is, this can be a hard thing when sins are nasty have a heart of reconciliation for people who have done very bad things. Okay, um, So that would be peaceful resolution in the sense of our community. Moving right along, agreement on core doctrines, love and humility, peaceful resolution, mutual edification. So let's talk just briefly about that. Romans 14, 19. This is a good passage that captures mutual edification. So then let us pursue, that is, press towards the mark. Be running after the goal, like, like a marathon racer, running towards that mark. Let us pursue what leads to peace and to mutual edification. What is mutual edification? What does that look like in your life? Mutual edification. Love it. Encouragement. Yep, encouragement. Thank you. I, I mean, honestly, the, the, the expression of the original language is it's like putting the bases and the foundations of putting a structure together and lifting it up. It, it actually has its rooting in, in the English word economy. Economy. It's like a whole structure, a whole system that we're involved with when we build and edify one another. Uh, this is... Um, yeah, building up a home uh, for the church of God. I, I just love it. And the reverse side of this, let's go to some proverbial wisdom here, Solomon. The reverse side of edification, to help underscore what we're talking about in a positive way, Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. So sometimes it's helpful to understand edification by looking at the opposite of it. Avoid these people because they'll start to encourage you in their ways. Proverbs 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. That's Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Mutual edification. <clears throat> oh, I guess I could have put all this up there for you. Uh, that would have been nice. So there's your scripture passage, and uh, 
what mutual edification means uh, in the original language. And I'm not going to go into George MacDonald. My wife begged me not to, so I'm definitely not going to. <laughs> but I did put those slides in there. He's a cool guy. Uh, believe, he was a pastor in the, in the late 19th century um, that had much to say on this topic. But uh, the, the, the bottom line on mutual, on this understanding of mutual edification is that believers are called to build each other up spiritually, encouraging growth in faith, knowledge, and character. That's kind of landing the jet on mutual edification. You get a mugshot of them, but we are moving right by that. So we have been through doctrines, love and humility, peaceful resolution, mutual edification, now worship and service, worship and service. If you go back to the Acts chapter 2 passage, you can certainly see how the, how the apostles not only saw the impact of the Holy Spirit in saving thousands of, of new converts to the faith, but also the sweetness of their engagement in fellowship, worship, and service one to another. Notice how the church just defaulted to that mode of operation. Worship and service, uh, Christians gathering together to worship God and serve their fellow believers and the broader community. Every activity that we engage in in the area of fellowship is an expression of our biblical unity and our worship should be embedded in our service. Okay? And then the final point that we have is agreement in unity involves diversity in unity. Diversity in unity. Very important concept, and I, I know I've given some scriptures that speak to this, but perhaps 1 Corinthians 1.10 is one of the more concise passages about this diversity and unity. Can, can you all agree that sometimes it can be kind of hard to go about a task in a different way? Somebody sees how to do it. Somebody says, no, no, you don't want to do it that way. Yeah, yeah, we want to do it that way. No, no, I don't want to do it that way. And before you know it, you're bifurcated over the methodology of what you're doing, right? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth that certainly had these issues going on as far as following different teachers, leaders, leaders. Um, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There is diversity in terms of these paths, in terms of these ways of seeking to unify, but ultimately, yeah, John 10 is great, too, because it speaks about how the expression of God in saving us in his rescue mission, pulling us out of the sheepfold of the, of the Pharisees, was a triune effort. The Holy Spirit was involved, the Son of God was involved, and certainly God had preordained it. In John 10, you can see that very clearly. There's a unity in terms of purpose in the redemptive work that we ought to be reflecting when we engage in our sense of, uh, of, of diversity, understanding diversity in our unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. Biblical unity can exist within a diverse group of believers who may have different gifts, backgrounds, and cultural expressions, but are bound together by their common faith in Christ. If you look at the battlefield of different faith systems that are in the world, There's not one, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, animism, 
paganism of any stripe or type, vain secular philosophies that has coherence, like our faith, like our doctrine. There isn't a one. They have massive gaping holes in them. And perhaps one of the greatest expressions of this is in Psalm 133. Could I have a volunteer read the three verses of Psalm 133, please? Um, David is coming out of a period of warfare, of great conflict. And his heart expresses a degree of rejoicing after seeing warfare, killing, murdering his best friend Jonathan, the king killed, a civil war between his followers and his army and that of the remnant of King Saul and his army, Abner, against Joab. I think it were, those are the two generals. They were fighting each other for years and years. And, and the fighting was terrible. And David comes out of that. Who's got Psalm 133? Could read the first, the, the three verses. Thank you. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a 3,000-year-old psalm, a song of rejoicing, of thankfulness that King David is expressing to God in heaven for the unity that he now sees finally in Israel. It was a unity that's, that is unrivaled in terms of how long it lasted with his son Solomon basically ruling over a common united Israel for a long period of time. And this is an expression, behold. So he's calling attention to this great unity. Unity is good for the soul is what you would fill into your line there. Unity is good for the soul. It is a true unity it is reflecting of God's very essence and nature. And when he uses that term, behold, he's saying, check this out. Look at this. He's really trying to draw attention to what he's communicating here. Unity is good. It is good for the soul. It's in God's very nature. It's not organizational. It's not in some type of church movement thing to unite. I mean, if you look at the Roman system, the Roman system would advocate, well, we need to pull everybody back into the one common church. That's what we need, one common church unified. And they'll lean into John 17 for that. But then you look at the last two popes, do you see a lot of unity and core doctrine between the last two popes? Anybody know anything about the last two popes? <laughs> the current one and the one before him? This guy's off the wall now. They were like this. Yeah, you had one who was doctrinaire, very much of a biblicist, still falling under the auspices and the influence of their doctrines. And now you've got a guy who's, who's essentially a communist running the Roman church. Again, it's a structure for disunity. It's a false unity. And so Catholics will, prop, will sometimes come about saying, look, we need a John 17, 20 kind of unity. Come back to the original church. Well, their church is, is absolutely not a, a biblical church. Sanctifies the body, 133 too. This, this notion of uh, oil running down. This is complete sanctity, covering Aaron's beard down, even dripping onto his ephod. 
This is a sense of how unity washes over and refreshes you when you're engaging in it. Well, the refreshment is in the last verse, uh, the, the dew of Mount Hermon, which is a mountain in the far north of Israel. Some people would say, hey, how can this 9,200-foot mountain cause water to occur on Mount Zion? You know, and they'll point to that and they'll say, what, what is the relationship here? Well, the point that David is making in this psalm is water and moisture in an arid place is like a balm. It's a source of re-energizing, reinvigorating, refreshment. Um, I ran around Forest Park yesterday twice and lost five pounds of water. <laughs> and boy, did I hit the wall hard. Yeah, you perspire like crazy in a hot and arid place, although this isn't hot and arid, it's hot and humid. It was hot and humid yesterday. And my point is that when I drank, it was so refreshing to, this, to, to my body, and I could just feel the water re-energizing, reinvigorating. Unity should do that very thing. Does that make sense? Well, that is a wrap for unity. Um, these are the things that we battle with every day. Uh, love without righteousness is immorality. Righteousness without doctrine is legalism. Doctrine without love is bitter orthodoxy. And there's balance here. And we can be disunified in dealing with this, or we can be balanced, loving, conflict resolving, holding fast to our core doctrines, engaging all of this with humility. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. How highly, Lord, you appraise unity. It is, in fact, who you are. You're a unified God and how you present to us. In that, we rejoice. Lord, we praise you for the unity that we see in this church. We know it's a blessing from you. Just like David wrote in Psalm 133, Lord, we are refreshed. We are commonly sanctified. And Lord, we are strengthened in our unity. And for that, we rejoice. We pray these things through your Son. Amen.